Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Through this time, I, I want us to take a minute before we start. Um, as I hope that you're doing both for one another and for me, I would ask you to do this, that we would go in spiritual warfare today for a moment and pray that God would do his work in our own hearts and lives. For your heart, whether you know it or not, is the battlefront. Uh, it is what's going on. The most important thing here is each of your hearts this morning before God. So we'll take a moment, we'll pray, and then we'll work through the text. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we need your help. We thank you for Jesus Christ, that we can say, yet not I, but Christ that lives in me. All of the blessings you have given to us in Jesus Christ are overwhelming. God, we realize though now as your children that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but Lord, the darkness principalities and power, Lord, that are against you, that want to take our hearts away from loving you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So this morning, God, I simply ask that you would work in your children and those who are not believers, that you would call them today, that they would hear the message of hope in Jesus, the message of the warrior king, Yahweh, who will put to rest his people in the land and put to death all of his enemies. So I pray this morning, God, that your word would go forward with faithfulness. May your spirit prick hearts. May we react then in faith and repentance. God, we need your help. So we cry out, we believe, but help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. We've experienced now some of the events that has happened. We we saw the crossing of the Jordan River. We've seen these 12 stones set up, the memorial, to remember the significance of these events and why they're important both to Israel but also to us and also to the nations. And now Israel stands or camps on the west side of the Jordan. They've made it over. That's where we find ourselves today. In these next 11 verses, now if you remember the last time we stopped at 5-1, I know that kills the OCD people in here, but that's where the, the guys who decided to break this down left it. We're going to start today at 5-2. Look at 5.2 through 5.12 is our, is our passage today. Where we pick this up, these next 11 verses, we will see that the wilderness wanderings have come to an end. We are no longer seeing nomads go throughout the land, following around the pillar. All the physical boundaries have been crossed. But here, in this text, today's text, we will find that the ceremonial requirements have also been completed the consecration of God's people, the absolute obedience of his people to himself. We'll see that Yahweh is faithful to his promises. Not new for us, but we're going to see it again, that Yahweh is completely faithful. Not only did he overcome the kings, remember Sihon Og on the eastern side, not only did he overcome them, not only did he overcome the Jordan River at its flood stage, Today we will actually see a miracle that is even more important if we can understand it. The miracle that is now seeing is that God has overcome the rebellious and wicked hearts of his people. 
and has now brought them to this place of obedience and to the promised land. Our text today will begin with a command from the Lord. We'll see it right off the bat. And then we'll see immediately a proper obedience right away. But then what we're going to see the rest of the passage really is these narrative notes on what's going on so that Israel can understand where they're at and so that we can also understand. In this passage, we have three main things that happen. So this will give you kind of some some, uh, stopping points to look at. The first thing we're going to see is circumcision. The sons of Israel are circumcised. The second is that the people of Israel keep the Passover. And then the third is that the manna stops. The manna that's been going on so long and feeding them in the wilderness, the manna stops. So these are very important, uh, but there are going to be a lot of other important details along the way for us to pick up on. But I want to make sure that these things help us to advance the plot, where we're at, where we're going. Uh, But the question for us as readers is, especially for for the nation, why? Why would you put it down in this manner? Or the question for us more importantly, why is this just put this way? So what we want to do is we want to look through this. I'm going to take a couple minutes and we're going to walk through the whole text together and make sure we understand the narrative. And then we'll kind of zoom in on a few things. So we'll take a look at verse 2 and 3. We have a very straightforward command. The Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel. If, if, if you can see, it's a mirror. It's exactly what he said to do, he did. It's meant to show immediate and perfect obedience as much as they could, that they would obey what Yahweh told them to do. They use the same verbs. There's a few other little things there we're going to talk about in a moment. But you're seeing Joshua listen to God, to Yahweh, and come right back and actually obey and circumcise these men. Now, this is par for the course. We shouldn't be surprised by this. The people of Israel in the book of Joshua so far have command, have responded to every command with obedience. Now, are they still wicked and sinful? Absolutely, just like we are. But we're seeing them completely give themselves over to obedience to the scriptures and Yahweh's words. So it's not like a new thing for us that they would do this. However, it's so important we see the nature of this obedience right from the get-go in this section. It's showing before we get from 5.2 to 5.12 that the first thing that he's trying to highlight is there was complete obedience to Yahweh's word. That's, I mean, the truth is this, is, this is not abnormal because we've seen them obey, but God says to circumcise the sons of Israel. Joshua circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth, which means the hill of the foreskins. Now, that's possibly a title we're okay with not knowing. However, it's extremely important to us. It's a real place. It shows us, it lends credence to the fact that this actually happened. But this was a place that people knew about. They knew of a place called Gibeath Haraloth. They knew that this was the place where they obeyed their, their God. And so the fact that it's even named this shows that this was something that actually happened. So we're, con- we're seeing that they truly did obey God. Now skip down to verse 8. Here we find that the circumcising of the whole nation is finished. They did indeed obey the Lord. And the result is verse 9. God making it clear that his people are now completely ready to move into the land as he consecrated this obedient people. Uh, Look at verses 8 and 9. I'm going to read it for us. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they healed. This is real. They actually need to heal from this procedure. This is what it's showing us. Verse 9. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. 
Now, the reason it's called Gilgal is because that name in the Hebrew sounds like the same verb for roll, to roll away. And so they have that as a name for that place because that is where God said, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Now, take a, th- a thought for a moment that God is bringing in speech to the narrative. It is the Lord himself telling them this. And he is pointing out that at this point in time, he wants to make sure he makes the important point that these people are no longer subject to the ridicule and reproach of Egypt. Now, to understand this, it's important to understand a few passages. You're going to remember these as I kind of talk about them. Back in Exodus 32, after the people had made the golden calf, Moses comes back down. He realizes their rebellion, and God wants to destroy this people. Moses, however, pleads with God, and he says this. Pay attention to the words of Egypt. He says this in defense of the people. O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, that he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Like this idea that Egyptians are like, that's what's happened. You want to go out in the desert? Fine, go out and die. Your, your God is not able to take you into the promised land. Let me bring you another place. Numbers 14. We'll talk about this later. Numbers 14, after the Kadesh Barnea incident, where the spies come back and they give a bad report, and the whole nation decides to grumble and complain and not obey Yahweh. And again, God is ready to destroy them. Listen to this speech from Moses again. Verse 13, But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land, they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day, in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who heard of your fame will say this, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them that he has killed them in the wilderness." In Deuteronomy chapter 9, 28, it tells the exact same story. We're seeing that there's a threat that the Egyptians will have some sort of mockery towards this people because God wasn't able to do what he said he was going to do. And if he destroys them, that he will just be the laughing stock of that area in the world. There is a constant drumbeat reminder that this is not happening for Israel alone. We saw that at the end of last week. Do you remember this? Joshua's whole point in one of the senses of that memorial is so that the world might see, the people of the earth might see that the hand of of God is mighty. We're seeing the same thing here. We are seeing that it is not happening in isolation. It's happening in front of all the nations. And foremost of that that he brings up is the nation that released them or allowed them to slip out of their hands, Egypt. So he's showing that if this is true, that they would have, if they, had, if they had perished in the wilderness completely, that there would have been a laughing stock of the whole world. However, at this point, after the circumcision is complete, he shows now and says that I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. They're no longer wandering in the wilderness. They're no longer at odds with their God. Consider that. Over and over again through the Pentateuch, we watch the people disobey God and him have great mercy on them, and disobey God, and have mercy, and they come back, and they go over and over and over again. And here, though, we have a new generation that is raised up, has been raised up, 
And this generation has obeyed God fully to the point that he has granted them the blessings of stepping into Canaan, the promised land that he promised to Abraham and all his descendants. With the entrance into this promised land, and now their complete obedience in taking the sign of the covenant, circumcision, what the Lord says then, remember, he says today, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Brothers and sisters, please notice that he doesn't say, you did it. He says, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Not, way to go on your obedience. You guys really did it. You merited your way in. Good job. Instead, he says, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Remember that he is the one that has done this, and all glory can only be to Yahweh. It is not his people's glory. It is God's alone. Uh, in verse 10, 11, and 12, take a look. We have the rest of the commands, uh, excuse me, the comments concerning what happened as they entered the land. Let me read this for us, 10, 11, and 12. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Now the details of verse 10 are striking. They almost seem like too much detail for some reason. We have there Israel obeying God down to the very last detail. In fact, what they're doing is they're looking back to the law of Moses and they're obeying it. They're looking back actually to Exodus 12, 6, when they were told to prepare the Passover meal. When they were told to prepare before the angel of death would come, and the last bl- plague for, those, uh, for, those, for the firstborn throughout the land. So what he's hearkening back here is to this. Let me read Exodus 12, 6 and consider the Passover that he told them this is how it was supposed to be. Moses said, about the Passover, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Here in Joshua, what's happening? They are keeping the Passover. On what day? On the 14th day of the month. When? In the evening. In other words, the twilight. We are seeing them take the commands of Yahweh seriously. And we're actually seeing them obey what he came in 1.7. Joshua 1.7 said, don't turn to the right or to the left of my commands. Stay here and be careful to do all according of the law of Moses that I told you. This is a picture of that. They are doing this. Joshua is having us look back and show that this has been complete obedience. Now another point. Let's talk about the Passover for a minute. Joshua is also having us look back at this first Passover this event that was monumental for the people of Israel, the time when the the nation prepared to leave Egypt by God's strong hand of deliverance. Remember this. What he is doing is delivering them, emancipating them from their slavery. But there's another aspect. He is redeeming them for his own. Consider that the Passover was never meant to be an isolated incident but rather it was one that would be practiced and remembered and celebrated as God's great act of deliverance and redemption. Remember that it was through the blood of the the lamb. His life was given, and again, the blood was sprinkled on the doorposts and on the lintel, that it was supposed to show that that was covering, 
In other words, that death allowed for life to happen. Even in that act alone, we're seeing the need for someone to atone for our sin. We see even in that respect right there that there has to be one to come that's greater than a lamb. It has to be the lamb of God who will someday pay the price and his blood will be shed and he will cover his people and he will save them for his own. In this respect, we see that the blood of the lamb, the sacrifice of life, is what would then save them from destruction. The act is significant because it both reminds the brothers there at Gilgal and also us that the Lord doesn't save us to neutrality. I want you to consider this for a minute. He doesn't save us to just go wander out in the, in the, in the wilderness. From the beginning, he knew where he was sending them, to the land, to the promised land, to the place of rest, to the place that he had promised to Abraham, that which is full of blessing, that would take care of them. That's where he was saving them to. And for us, we are not saved to some sort of spiritual neutrality. We are saved rather to himself. We are saved to good works. We are saved also to ultimate rest as we look forward to knowing him completely one day. And so it's helpful for us to consider that he is not just saving us to neutrality, but rather he is pointing us on and showing us that there is far more that he is saving us toward. His deliverance doesn't end in us doing whatever we want to, but rather in being his people. God has led his people through the wilderness, and as they've obeyed, he has given them success. He said he would. If you will obey me, you will be prosperous. He has given them success, and now they keep the Passover, a celebration of Yahweh's redemption, a celebration that God is the one who will save and deliver. Uh, amazing, again, Joshua's name keeps coming up. Yahweh saves, Yahweh delivers. And they take this time to set aside to celebrate God, the one who will save and deliver and who has already. Now, if you take a look at verse 11, you'll see that there's a detail concerning the next day's menu. We have unleavened cakes and parched grain. This little detail is not about the food itself. It's about how they get the food. Consider what they've been doing for the last 40 years. Consider where their food sources come from. This is a different detail. We're seeing that the food was harvested in the new land. It further reminds us that God has truly provided for them in this new land flowing with milk and honey. The Passover in verse 10 will actually be combined with this idea here and the Jews will later on celebrate Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread because of this event right here. As the people remember that the people went into the land that God had promised them, remembering his, both his redemption and his provision, both of the land and for their physical needs. He has provided all that they need. It's another reminder to us then that God's people have always looked back to remember and celebrate the wonders of God through the ages. He has redeemed and emancipated his people from Egypt, but he has also kept his promises in the good land to provide them everything that they need. Now verse 12, take a look. This is the end of the era. Throughout the wilderness wanderings, remember what Yahweh has done. He has supernaturally provided for their needs. He has given them manna. He has given them what they need. They would go outside, they would pick it up off the ground each morning, and they would grind it up or prepare it however they were going to, and this would be their bread. Again, reminding us who bread is really from. Not only our physical provision, but throughout the scriptures we'll see that we need the living bread, the bread of life himself. But this is true. As this stops, though, 
We don't see God's care stop for them as though they're just left to themselves. The manna was never supposed to be permanent. It was a picture, like we said, of God's provision. And now, as they leave the wilderness and they enter the land, God provides for them still. It's just different. It's not through manna. He provides through fertile land and a command to take this land and use it properly for food and for blessing. Remember Deuteronomy 6. He said, great and good cities that you did not build. Remember that? Or houses full of good things that you did not fill. And cisterns that you did not dig. And vineyards and olives that you did not plant. Who's really in charge of your provision? You? Your hard work? Or is it God that gives? God is at work fulfilling all of his promises. And here we see the stopping of the manna so that these people might know God has now moved them into the land. And it is supposed to be for them. This really brings us to kind of the end of this little passage. We talked about the three different parts here. The circumcision, we talked about the Passover, and now the cessation of the manna, the stopping of this. God has been faithful to his promises, and he's brought them into this new era of blessing as they conquer the land. And this is good stuff. But for the Christian and for the Israelite, the history lesson really is incomplete. We can see the major three things, these circumcision, Passover, manna stopping, but we need to ask ourselves, so what? Is it just a piece of history? And now we know, okay, that era ended, and now we go on to the next. If you've been at Cornerstone for any time, you know it's not just history. There's always a theological bent that the author is trying to help us see. He is trying to teach us something. So is it simply history? No. If it isn't just to give us the details of Israel's movements, then why did Joshua include this section? He could have done a lot shorter. Most of you probably noticed that I did not cover verses 4 through 7. If you did, I want to help us to do something. I want to make sure that you can see the flow of the narrative before we zone in here and look at verse 4 through 7. If you take a look at the passage in your Bible, you're going to see that it is 4 through 7 is at the heart of this communication. He takes time to make sure that they understand that this is the most important thing. In verses 2 and 3, we saw clear obedience. We saw it from the beginning. God says to circumcise, they circumcise. Joshua circumcised the sons of Israel as God had commanded. But in verse 4, the narrator stops the narrative. Notice that it's not communication given to the people that are going to be circumcised or after. This is a note for us. This is a note for the reader. This is very helpful. He is going to give us a reason. Take a look. Our narrator is going to give and use this generation, this obedient generation of Joshua, and he is going to contrast it against the old, wicked, rebellious generation of their fathers. This is what's a heart here of this passage. It's not just details. He is showing explicitly how important this is. He is going to use this as a contrast to help us see. Let me read 4 through 7 for us. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt, though all the people who came out had been circumcised. Yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who come out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. 
the Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing of milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. Here's the basic gist. A whole group of male Israelites, the overwhelming majority of this group, had not been circumcised while they wandered through the wilderness. They needed to be circumcised. This was a sign of the covenant of their God, identification, obedience, faith, a sign of complete faith and obedience. Let's stop for a moment, and I want to have a quick discussion on circumcision. When we go back to Genesis 12, we got to consider what's going on. God comes to Abraham and says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. That's the first interaction he has with Abraham, or Abram at that time. He tells Abram that he will make a great nation of him, that he will bless him, that he will give him a land, that he will make his name great. Those who curse him, he will curse. Those who uh, bless him, he will bless. That's chapter 12. In chapter 15, as we move on, we come to this time where God comes to Abram again, but this time is to make a very specific covenant with him. The Lord expands his promises and makes it clear that Abram is going to be the father of millions of people. If you remember this story, he says, go outside and look up. All the stars that you see, that's going to be your offspring. Millions and millions. You can't even number how many that's going to be. And it's in this passage that we see Abram's response so clearly that the Apostle Paul, James himself, several times we see in the New Testament Harken back to and quote this verse, Genesis 15, 6. And he believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. The calling of Abram, but then we have the covenant and his believing in God. And it's not until after that that we get to chapter 17. Chapter 17, we have a really interesting event. It takes place after Abram and Sarai have used Hagar to bear him a son. But he wasn't the promised son. He did not, they did not do the thing that God had asked them to do. They went around. And the Lord comes again to Abram, and he comes to highlight his promise of offspring, of fruitfulness, of progeny, of people that will come after him, many generations. I want you to listen. I'm only going to read a few verses. It's littered through here, but I'm going to read a few verses to show you. I want you to listen to nations. I want you to listen to offspring, children, fruitfulness, any of these types of words, and see that he is highlighting this here. Genesis 17, verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. You go on and on and on. I mean, he is, he is making sure it's clear that there is going to be many people coming from his loins. That is going to come from him, that offspring. So far, we're good with all this. It seems like this is just God showing that, okay, you're going to be fruitful. You're going to have a lot of children. But then verse 10 comes in. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Wait, what? Like, you just talked to me about fruitfulness and uh, being a father 
in having many generations come from me, and now you're telling me to go back to the, the again, I'm, again, I'm trying to be careful as much as possible here, but he's telling us to go back to our natural hardware and uh, in one sense, take a piece of that foreskin off, threaten the very thing that naturally brings God's promises to fruition. It is that thing that God uses that piece of, of human reproduction with male and female together. And he tells him to go back. Do you catch the irony here? He says, you're going to be fruitful. You're going to have reproduction. You're going to have so many children and offspring. And so what I want you to do is circumcise yourself. It is therefore an act of faith. In the middle of all this talk about fruitfulness, God says, remove the foreskin for these sons of Israel so that they remember that I am the one that gives life, not their own efforts. Remember that it is me who does it. And so what we see, even in the act of circumcision, is actually all about, for, for Israel, for Israel specifically, this is an act of faith and obedience. And so as God's people see this, they recognize that they are supposed to obey. And that's what we see them do, an act of faith and obedience. God has proclaimed that Abram is no longer just the high father, now he's going to be Abraham, the father of a multitude. Sarai is not princess anymore, Sarai. It's Sarah, mother of nations. God is promising lots and lots of kids and yet reminds them that this is an act of faith to trust him. This act reminds the individual, the individual that children are a gift from God, not of your own doing. It never was. It was always his work. This, then, is the procedure that Joshua is commanded to perform on all the sons of Israel, an act of faith and obedience to their covenant God. When we started in Joshua 1, we came into the middle, kind of, or in the midst of a period of Israel's life, in the middle of the, the, the wanderings. They're coming to the end of it, but in the midst of the wanderings throughout the wilderness. All the people in this group were 59 years and younger, except for Joshua and Caleb. This group knew almost nothing except the desert wandering. Think about this. The reason you can say that is because the 20-year-olds, those that were of a fighting age, all those would die in the wilderness. So those that were 19 to 0, they probably knew something of Egypt. And as they went into there, they hadn't been yet ready to fight. This group probably saw much of the promised land. And that's what we're talking about here. The group we meet in Joshua 1 was comprised of this small band of once children living in Egypt, and then the rest of the people are the ones that were born in the wilderness, the vast majority of people born in 40 years' worth in the wilderness. They knew something about food being not from the land, but rather they'd go out, like we said, and pick it up off the ground. All they knew was manna, quail, and when the rock got struck, they got, they got free water. All they knew was God's supernatural act of provision. When this happens... God is ready to destroy this people. And we see some of these things happening, and yet he takes care of them in every single way. The group we meet here then did not receive the sign of circumcision. Now, we don't know why. The text doesn't tell us. Like, we, I've had discussions with some other brothers like, hey, why in the world didn't Moses say, hey, circumcise them on the way. When your children are born the eighth day, circumcise the sons. Why not? The text doesn't tell us. I can say one thing on that. They are known to be a rebellious and wicked and unfaithful generation. And so it makes sense that they did not obey God. 
we're going to see them perish in the wilderness. So we shouldn't be surprised that they didn't obey all of God's commands. Um, for some unstated reason, they did not receive the sign of circumcision. I want you to consider Numbers 13 and 14. We find the previous generation, the people who have left the Egypt, they have gone to the Exodus, they've rebelled against Yahweh in their unbelief and disobedience. And when those spies come back and give a bad report, they grumble and complain and to the point that they're freaking out. They're like, we were supposed to be able to go into this land and you're saying that there's these huge people in there but we shouldn't do it? Man, I wish we would go back to Egypt. And they grumble and complain and they do not trust God. In other words, they're saying, God, I know that you told us that we could go into this land but we don't believe you're strong enough to actually do it. They showed a great deal of unbelief that they were not willing to obey Yahweh. When this happens, again, God is ready to destroy his people. We've already talked about this. Moses intercedes and pleads with God that he would consider taking action for the sake of his name. The text that Moses quotes, though, is great. We, did it, we, we read it this morning together from Exodus 34 where God himself proclaims the character of God. And he says, The Lord, Lord, is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Yahweh does pardon them. Yahweh does not destroy the entire nation at this point. However, he is still true to Exodus 34, 6, and 7. He will by no means clear the guilty. And so it comes out of this is that we see that he swears to these people that they will not see the land. They will not get to experience the promised land and that they will perish before they ever reach the banks of the Jordan River. Thus, we have a whole generation of wicked people perishing in the wilderness because of their disobedience and their unbelief. And yet, and yet, God is still true to his character. He is still true to Exodus 34, 6, and 7, the first half. He is still one who is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Here in Joshua, we have God proving himself. Don't miss this. He is proving himself that he is true to his character. Joshua 5, 7 is proof. Take a look. The wicked generation perished. What is to be done? So it was their children whom he raised up in their place. God conquers. Even his own people, rebellious and unbelieving, and he by no means clears them, but yet he raises up a people for himself. Do you see the enormous grace of God in this action? He caused an entire generation of unbelievers to perish in the desert and yet he remained true to himself. And yet he is still a steadfast, loving God who will see the promises that he made to Abraham come to complete and beautiful fruition. It is Yahweh who overcomes his people's rebellion and unbelief by raising up a people who will obey him. That's what we're seeing so far in Joshua. Perfect, no, but a people who obey him and love him, yes. Didn't Jesus say something about this? I mean, it was Yahweh who overcame his people's rebellion and raised up a people to obey him. In Matthew 3, if you remember this, when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, he calls them a brood of vipers. Matthew 3, 8 says this, though. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, we're circumcised. In other words, we've done the things. We have the sign of the covenant. So he says, bear fruit in keeping repentance and do not presume to say yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What, you think I'm, like, I'm, I'm hampered by your disbelief and your disobedience? I can take these stones and make sons of Abraham. We are seeing that in Joshua. We are seeing him, a whole generation who does not believe and who perishes in the wilderness. And we see out of it God continue to keep his promises where he raises up this generation who obeys him. Uh, he raises up this people in the place of their wicked fathers and this people is a people of obedience. We've seen that already in the first couple chapters of this book. But further than that, there are people now that are completely dominated by faith. They've received the sign of the covenant. They have participated in circumcision, obedience, and faith. God has made for himself a people who obey and a people who acclaim the promises of Abraham, a people who will dwell in the land of God with him forever at rest. This is utterly amazing because it helps us to get a right, a right perspective about who God is and how he interacts with his people. i got two takeaways for you. Number one, God himself is able to raise up his people. It is God who is able to do this, and we must see him then as the God who is described in Exodus 34. Merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love. He will not be thwarted. He cannot be. He will crush his enemies, and he will exalt himself. He will win. And we see him here doing it over and over and over again. But the second thing I want us to consider, the whole center of this, this message here today from this passage is four through seven. And the whole purpose of that is to help us understand that a wicked generation did not believe and trust God. And our author highlights the fact that they were circumcised. They had every sign of a believing, righteous people. In fact, if we really think about it, it's this generation who got to see the Red Sea, who got to see all the plagues of Egypt, who got to see so many things that God had done for them. They had every reason to believe God, and they showed in their flesh the circumcision that they had the sign of the covenant. They were identified with this God, and yet when they get to the edge and ready to go in, in Numbers 13 and 14, into the land, they don't believe him. They don't actually trust him. How, is it possible then that we as well have signs of being Christ followers as well and yet we don't actually believe? We went through James and saw that faith without works is dead. It absolutely is. I'm going to switch it for a minute. Is it possible though that works without faith is also dead? Did they not have works? Did they not do all the things that seemingly they had circumcision? And yet what happens? What are they known for? Unbelief. And actually in the end, they do both things wrong. They don't have faith and they don't have works because they didn't obey God. Brothers and sisters, this is a reminder for us. It is not in and of ourselves that we can merit forgiveness, salvation, the inheritance with Christ. But brothers and sisters, we must obey. And if as this happens, and you know that the sin that you commit it pricks your heart because of the Holy Spirit's work in you. Repent and believe the gospel. 
we ought to continue to pursue righteous living. This is not me Bible thumping. This is us showing that this is in line with the one who has given us life. It is Jesus who said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so I call you as, as one another. I cannot tell your heart. I cannot know if you are actually a believer. But I can tell you this. You must trust and love and know him. And you must act in accordance with his law. And so it's a reminder for us that never is one separated from the other. And a reminder, lastly, that God will raise up a generation for his sake. Let's take a moment and pray together. God, we thank you for the truths that Joshua has let us know about, reminding us of truths that are not new. And yet, Lord, we struggle because we often think that if we have the signs of the faith, that we're good. We go to church and we do this thing and that thing, that we must be okay. God, would you help us to see truthfully the words that you've given to us here in Joshua and ask the question, Lord, would you help me to believe? Would you give us faith and repentance? Would you work in us, God, and do your will? My applications are always short. I know that you can take this, though, and take it through your word and apply it to our, our hearts together. So we just, again, as we started out, we ask for faith and repentance. And we ask that you would help us to pursue righteousness because of our God and who he is. We love you in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.